Drinks with the Doll, episode 133. You're listening to Drinks with the Doll, a podcast way station for Lost Girl fans. I am your host, Stephanie. And I'm Annie. And I'm Chris. And with us today, my favorite guest ever, my partner Susan is here. Hello. Remember back when we were talking about, I can't remember which episode, but we were talking about season five, and I was pointing out, there's lots of elevators this season, guys. We're going to talk about it later. We're here to talk about the elevators today. And when I started thinking about the elevators and talking to Susan about elevators, because Susan has a degree in anthropology and knows like stuff about narrative and stuff like that, she's like, really? The elevators relate to the hero's journey. So we're like, ah, we can talk about Bo and how she follows the hero's journey in Lost Girl. So Susan actually found a drink special for us for this episode. What'd you find, Susan? I found the lookout below. Which I think will make more sense when we, once we start talking, but trust me, it makes sense. And to make a lookout below, it's one and a half ounces of 151 proof rum, the juice of one quarter lime, and one teaspoon of grenadine. Look out for that stuff. It'll sneak up on you. Put that all together and shake it with ice and strain it into an old-fashioned glass over ice cubes. Okay, and be- and because Annie sometimes doesn't understand jokes, you have to hey. explain the watch out for the grenadine comment that you made. A, a good friend of mine who had was one of the only people in our group who had never drunk a drop of alcohol before he turned 21. When he turned 21, a bunch of his friends took him out and just got him snockered right bought him all kinds of of shots including a couple that had grenadine in them and as he was in his bathroom begging for mercy and throwing up his guts he managed to say oh man it must have been the grenadine that stuff is strong (laughs) is it really strong no it's the juice of pomegranate seeds That's what I thought. Okay. So we we made him his own special shot called It Must Have Been the Grenadine. (laughs) So I just wanted to make sure that Annie realized that grenadine actually isn't alcoholic at all, which is why I had you tell that story. Yeah, I thought it was more like to make the drink look pretty. Yes, Yes. and kind of sweet. But I thought it was interesting because you think about it, we had several images of elevators and they were all really closely associated with the ancients. And the one that I'm thinking of is we had the elevator that was in the Royal York Hotel back in episodes one and two that both took Bo up into Kenzie's room and then took Bo way, way, way down into, I guess, Tartarus. That's where she went and kind of confronted her father in episode Mm -hmm. two. So we had that elevator. And then we had when Bo lights the candle and the ancients come and they take over the vessels, they were in the elevator and they die in an elevator crash. And then there was that elevator up into the ancient's apartment. And that's the one that we see a ton, a ton where Bo's both riding up, going down dramatic shots of the doors closing in Bo's face. So we see that elevator a whole lot, but it did, it did get me thinking about why are there so many elevators? Cause that's not that I can think of. It's not something that we see regularly in other seasons do you think that's fair not that i can not that i can think Mm, of yeah yeah. not really because on Grey's anatomy they use elevators all the time and i wish they had used the elevators like they do on Grey's anatomy where there's all this furtive making out happening in the elevators did not happen this season (laughs) i know i know i can think of two significant elevators there's the the one which i know we'll talk about more later that's in the first episode and then there's also the one in um, episode eight which was the pilot where Bo's coming up to Dyson's apartment 
in oh, this industrial yeah. elevator and she's dripping blood. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was supposed to be the kind of the first image we get of her. Yeah. So yeah, those are the ones I thought of, aside from the ones you were mentioning from this season. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, but but I don't think that they've been a regular feature on the show. Sometimes Bo will use them, but they're just not as constant as I think they have been this past season. I assume it's mostly a, like, if the set design happens to have it, mm-hmm. then and they use it because, it. of course, it looks cool. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. a good visual. Right. But I was uh, particularly reminded of that first elevator that we see back in episode 501. I think we talked about it at the time. It kind of reminded us of Willy Wonka and the Great Glass Elevator because it had just so many buttons all over the place. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that one seemed to be a special elevator because not only was it moving you through a building, but it also moved you from Valhalla down into Tartarus. So it was crossing into these different worlds as well. So I decided to look up elevators. And first I was thinking, what do they tend to symbolize like in dreams? And not surprisingly, once I started reading, like an, an, an ascending elevator, one going from the bottom to the top of a building, has a different symbolism to it than a descending elevator. And ascending elevators often are related to a rise in like power or status going up in those things relatively easily. And then descending elevators, they symbolize setbacks and feelings of powerlessness. And then an out of control elevator often will represent like chaos. And so I was thinking specifically that reminded me of the end of Like Hell Part 1 when Bo was in the elevator in the Royal York Hotel. And it was just, you know, bottoming out, just free falling down into Tartarus. And I and I do think that that is a particularly chaotic note with which to end the first episode of the season. After I looked up the dream symbology, I was also thinking about elevators as liminal spaces. And I'm a big fan of liminal spaces. I wrote, just for fun, I wrote like <laughs> a, I don't know, it's a several thousand word essay about Willow and Tara in doorways and doors and liminal spaces and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's out there on the internet. It, I thought it was pretty good. But anyway. So. You nerd. I'm actually pretty sure I read that like, I don't know. Back in the day? <laughs> yeah, back in the day. Wow. So you wrote it for fun? That's amazing. Yeah, just for fun. <laughs> I, I don't even know what the word liminal means hardly. Well, Susan. Well, I'm here to help. Uh, <laughs> liminal is a word that we use in anthropology and religious studies and ritual studies. It conveys this sense of ambiguity or the disorientation that people feel in the middle of a ritual. Liminality comes from the Latin root limen, which means threshold. So oh. it, when you're in a liminal state, you are on the threshold between two states of being. So, you know, a person no longer has the status they had before ritual, but they haven't yet moved into who they're going to be afterwards. So rites of passage are good examples. So in a puberty rite, a girl that's in that ritual, she's not a girl anymore, but she's not a woman. Or graduation, you're not a student anymore, but you're not a graduate. And so you see all kinds of things that happen in liminal state. You find people that are dressed specially or they wear special symbols to uh, denote that status. And there's also this intense bonding that happens with people in liminal states and liminal spaces. It's super, super interesting to look at the fact that the idea of liminal space is something that's basically cross-cultural. We find it everywhere, even though it might look a little different. Like Britney Spears songs. <laughs> oh. or the, no, no, I was... The, uh, Would you like to when explain, you teach, Chris? <laughs> when you teach, no, no, not Britney Spears songs, but the Britney Spears song, I was going to say, do you reference the Britney Spears song when you, when you teach this? I don't know which one you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Which There's one that is. Britney Spears song that's like a... Uh, not a girl, not yet a woman, or something, uh, right? Uh, 
Oh, well. I was like, when does Britney Spears sing about going through doors? But- <laughs> She might. I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm is this not one of those things where I'm going to be that. really impressed? Like, I'm impressed that Shakira managed to fit the word lycanthropy into a pop song. Am I not listening hard enough to Britney Spears manage to put liminality into a pop song? I know, right? I love it. <laughs> uh, I might have to reference that from, from now going forward. Uh, Victor Turner, who is one of the people who really wrote a lot about this. Um, it's not his term. It's Arnold Van Gennep's term. Thank you. But, I was going to say. Um, <laughs> Van Gennep and Turner both referred to what happens in a liminal state as being betwixt and between, which I think is a beautiful state. And what happens in liminal space, you can do a lot of things in liminal space that you can't do in the real world, which is why they're actually convenient spaces and vehicles and stories for things that transgress Social norms. I have to think about all the sex in the elevators in Grey's Anatomy. Right. That way, too. There's things people can do in these in-between spaces that once you've arrived on the other side of the threshold, you you can't do anymore. Right. And a lot of a lot of times on Grey's Anatomy, people say things in the elevator that mm-hmm. they're having difficulty saying yes. when they're not in the elevator. Yeah. Things like that. And you can have entire spaces of time that are liminal spaces. So, like, Mardi Gras is a liminal space because you can do all kinds of things during Mardi Gras that you can't do on the days on either side. It's this really fascinating sort of kind of human response. It's often used to discharge a lot of social pressure. There's, you can really go down the rabbit hole, which is in and of itself a liminal space in Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) um, If you, if you want to, if you want to look at this. And, and I think now listening to you talk, Susan, people who have been regular listeners to the show are thinking this is why Stephanie and Susan are dating. Yes, okay. it is. <laughs> because they like being in their liminal space <laughs> of their apartment with cats. <laughs> Betwixt and between. between. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I thought thinking of elevators as a liminal space and Bo kind of be- being between statuses, I think, especially retrospectively, now that we've seen where she ended up, it kind of makes sense for this season because she declares that, you know, I will live the life I choose at the end of the season. And and I think this whole season five, obviously, was a lead up to her kind of finally landing in the life that she really wanted. I don't know. I, but I feel like thinking of it that way, representing Le- Bo being in liminal space, I think that kind of works for the season. What do y'all think? I actually mostly think it's true of season three. Yeah, mm. it works for season three, too, where, like leading up to the dawning. Right. Yeah, because remember when she's training for the dawning and she's trying to transition through that magical door when she's training with Trick and she's trying to get to the point where she can, but she's not quite there to transition to this space and how she learns how to do it throughout the episode. Well, I was actually thinking of even before that in the season where they establish that something is weird with Bo, but we don't know what it is. And yeah, like the entire season is about that. Yeah. Mm. Well, and in some ways, Bo is a liminal being herself for the entire series because she's undeclared, right? And there's all of this... Except in season four. Except in season four. But there's all this sort of pressure on her from her entry into the Fey world that, oh no, you can't just exist undeclared. You got to pick a side. You can't do that. And she keeps doing that. She keeps just existing. And that's not something that in the world as it's presented is supposed to happen. And so there's this all this sort of liminal energy about her and her like, really fighting to maintain that status rather than having to transition to one side or the other. It's, I think that's super interesting. Well, I always think even in the fourth season, she was tricked into being dark and that she's not, I still never really thought of her as fully dark because she gave up that status or tore up the contract anyway and still 
actively pursued not being with the dark by the end of the season to fight to re- maintain that liminal space, as you're saying, Susan. Right. She, it was tactical, her choosing a side, but it wasn't heartfelt. So technically she was aligned, but in her heart, she really wasn't. So yeah. it's, it's more a technicality that she's declared in season four than her actually wanting to, or having chose a side truly. So we've got liminality. And then elevators are also, what, Susan? You're the one who said this to me. <laughs> they are. This is immediately what I thought of when Steph started asking me about this, that elevators are also symbolic, what's called Axis Mundi or World Axis. And you see this in a lot of religions and a lot of philosophies, a lot of myths, that there's this concept that there is something, this axis that connects the lower realm with the middle realm, with the upper realm, and communication can flow along that People and animals can move upon it. So in Norse mythology, Yggdrasil... This is my favorite thing out of mythology because it's so weird. I love this. <laughs> uh, in Norse mythology, um, Yggdrasil, which is the world tree, is a tree that runs through all nine worlds in the Norse world. And there's a little squirrel named Ratatosk that runs up and down the tree because there is an eagle at the top and a dragon at the bottom. And they have been feuding since the beginning of time. And so Ratatos carries messages up and down, but really what he does is f- is fuels the feud. Yeah, like the dragon will say something, and then Ratatos will be like, to the eagle, like, the dragon totally said this horrible thing about yes. you, man. Don't you want to get back at him? Yes. <laughs> Even though the dragon didn't actually say that. And I was telling Stephanie that my, my favorite rendition of this is in um, Kevin Hearn's Hammered, which is like the third or fourth book in the Iron Druid Chronicles, where um, Ratatos carries a message from the dragon to the to the eagle and then from the eagle back to the dragon and the message from the eagle is not all that confrontational but when by the time Ratatosk gets down to the dragon he says the eagle says you can kiss his cloaca (laughs) 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 I just kind of love that Um, we find them all over the place trees are, are common but anything that can move you from one world to another can be an axis mundi and and elevators Absolutely. The TARDIS is an Axis Mundi. From f- Doctor Who. Yeah, from Doctor Who. Bill and Ted's phone booth and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure <laughs> is an Axis Mundi. Like, you can find it everywhere once you start seeing it. So, and and since we were talking about Yggdrasil just a second ago, I wanted to point out that the ring that Trick gives to Kenzie is called the Ring of Yggdrasil. And what does it do? It allows her to move freely between the human and fae worlds without having to be claimed or anything like that. So it, it kind of ties back to this idea that an Axis Mundi allows you to move between the worlds. The, the Axis Mundi is itself a liminal space because it's literally between the worlds. And then when you move along the Axis Mundi, that's... That's the threshold. That is that liminal space. When you're moving along the Axis Mundi, you're moving in liminal space. And I'm a nerd, so I've been mentally thinking about mentally thinking about. <laughs> I've been Sorry. thinking about the the other like nerd things because talking about Yggdrasil, and I mean they do that in in Thor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got that whole thing in the Rainbow Bridge and stuff. And there was actually a tree where they were talking about how the tree is often symbolic of a a stairway to the underworld or something like that on Sleepy Hollow this hmm. this past week. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's this huge archetype. When once you start kind of pulling it apart, you know, and the the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland is an Axis Mundi. The um, Beanstalk and Jack and the Beanstalk. The Beanstalk and Jack and the Beanstalk, the the Tree of Life in uh, Kabbalah. You know, you start to to see it everywhere and it's a, you know, 
always a question of, do you see it everywhere because it's there? Do you see it everywhere because you have that theory? But it seems to be something that we find across a lot of unrelated cultures. And and like I was saying, like the elevator back in Like Hell Part 1, definitely Bo was able to move between the different levels of the afterlife, I guess, in from Valhalla to, to Tartarus in an elevator. So I think definitely there you can see it as an Axis Mundi. But Axis Mundi are also an important part in the hero's journey, which I think most people have heard about, mm-hmm. right? Most Western stories are based on the hero's journey. Yes. Well, the hero's journey is a, a concept of this, this uh, cycle that a hero, and doesn't have to be a male person, that Joseph Campbell uh, put forward in a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And one of the first steps on the hero's journey is this call to adventure. And in the hero's journey, you have your hero who moves between kind of an ordinary world and a special world. And Axis Mundi is typically the the vehicle by which that journey starts. And the hero's call to adventure is often to engage with the Axis Mundi. So I used the example of Jack and the Beanstalk when we were talking about this, that Jack plants these beans, he comes out in the morning, there's this stalk, and he feels compelled to climb it. And that's what takes him to the upper world with the giant. That's that's his call to adventure. When people sort of... uh, engage with the Axis Mundi. They're going on this. So definitely like the tornado for Dorothy that picks her up. She doesn't go willingly, but she gets picked up by this tornado and taken to Oz. That's her call to adventure. And that's what starts the hero's journey. And a hero can go through the hero's journey many times in their life, but it's it almost always starts with this call to adventure and then the engagement of something that's going to take them between the worlds. Because I was talking to Susan about elevators and noticing all the elevators in season five. And Susan pointed out actually that like Bo's whole story, what sort of sets her off on her adventure that we see chronicled over the five seasons of Lost Girl happens in an elevator. Ooh, that's true. Because she chooses to go after Kenzie and save her from that guy. And that's what leads Dyson and Hale onto her scent. They find her, they take her, and she like realizes she's Faye. And I wasn't even thinking about that, but that's a really good point. It starts to, they, they descend, which is, that's what's the most common in Hero's Journeys is, is a descent to like the underworld. You see it in a lot of even world mythology. Um, underworld journeys are a big deal. As far back, the first epic that we have written down, Gilgamesh, there is an underworld journey. I mean, that's where the Western heroic tradition starts is with Gilgamesh and he journeys into, there's this journey into the underworld. And Bo was going down. And Bo was was going down down into 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 this basement. And we don't have any sense. I mean, she may have saved humans from predators before, but the humans she saved didn't film it on their cell phone. You know, she didn't, she'd never sort of been caught. And she has this experience where she, she leaves this kind of messy kill. And then Kenzie, you know, wakes up and has this video on her on her phone, and that's what kicks it all off. Whereas if Kenzie hadn't uh, recorded that, Bo just would have blown town, mm-hmm. and like she always did when when she left to kill, and would have never known about this sort of special state that she had. But ev- everything starts with that. And I like that you point out that Vexed, which was the original pilot, also begins with Bo, well, literally begins with Bo in an elevator. Mm-hmm. But that time, it's interesting because she's going up, mm-hmm. but the can- camera is panning mm-hmm. down. It's really interestingly mm-hmm. shot. But there's still, I think, the suggestion of this transition from mm-hmm. regular world to a different world if you're looking at it as the beginning of the series, perhaps. Right. And, the other, and the way that they sort of um, – the camera on the blood that's dripping off her hand – is really powerful. And it's this very industrial elevator, which I think is also, there's something about that that's very 
like primal. So either way, her journey was going to start in an elevator. Hmm. But when Susan said that, I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can she, picture the light bulb over your head right uh-huh. now. <laughs> she just, she impresses me all the time. <laughs> I paid many I thousands of dollars to be able to make observations <laughs> like this. <laughs> well, thank you, Susan, my favorite guest, my partner, my mushy face. My axis mundi. <laughs> <laughs> for, for sharing your knowledge with us on on these topics but susan actually is not caught up on lost girl she's only up through the beginning of season three so she's going to leave us and chris and i and annie and i are going to continue talking about Bo on the hero's journey so thank you susan absolutely i've liked me i've had a fun time being here and uh, because i am a professor i like to give homework if there are if you're interested in reading more about axis mundi and the hero's journey and all these sort of universal symbols i um Highly recommend um, Joseph Campbell's A Hero with a Thousand Faces, or uh, James Fraser's The Golden Bow, or Mircea Eliade's uh, book Shamanism, which is a little heavy, but you can skip around through it. And it talks about the use of these symbols in especially a lot of non-Western cultures. Thank you so much, and I'd, I'd love to come back anytime you want to talk mythology. So let's talk a little bit about Bo as the hero of this story and sort of the the hero's journey. Like I said, I think most people know the basic strokes of it. And I think definitely we see Bo. Well, it's interesting because I feel like in the beginning, she doesn't necessarily start in the ordinary world. She's kind of in a liminal space because right, we see her when she actually figures out like, oh, something's different about me when we get the flashbacks of when she kills Kyle. So she's kind of like in this place where she knows something is strange about her, but she doesn't know about the world of the Fae. So she is kind of in an ordinary world, but she's been launched into realizing like, oh, I'm not just a regular human. She's trying to exist in the ordinary world, but still feels like she has to hide what she is so she doesn't get caught. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. And, like, prosecuted by authorities. Mm-hmm. And she feels like she has to flee from town to town to hide what she is. So Right. Actually, it's kind of interesting thinking about it now, because Susan was just talking about how Mardi Gras is considered sort of a liminal space, right? Because it's a place where people tend to act out. Right. Bo works in bars, which are kind of like your daily version of a Mardi Gras. That's true. It's like permission. No, I, I, I totally agree. It's kind of a place where you can act a little. Social norms don't apply quite as much. If you get a little drunk, people are more likely to be like, oh... You know, they're drunk. They're just acting kind of weird because they're drunk. Yeah, I totally see where you're get coming from. You know what else is a liminal space that just occurred to me now that I know what a liminal space is? What? Thank you, Susan. <laughs> is uh, conventions. Yes. Those are awesome liminal spaces. Because <laughs> everybody can dress and act a little. Yeah, yeah, it's nerd it's nerd Mardi, Mardi Gras. Yeah. Everybody can be what they want and take off from their daily life as an accountant, as a librarian, whatever, and instead be an anime character or whatever. Yeah. But they're definitely removed from reality, the, the everyday life. And then the first big step on the hero's journey is like the call to adventure, like Susan was talking about. And I think definitely that's we see that in the first episode where Bo has to go through that challenge. What is it called? Do you remember what it's called? The test? I think they just call it the test, right? I really don't remember. Yeah, well, even sorry. from the very beginning when she, you know, does the kill, but then Kenzie records it. So she realizes she has to break out of her routine and either 
save Kenzie or at least save her for the moment so she can get the video. But I think that's really Bo just being Bo, genuinely wanting to save her, not just for self-preservation, but genuinely wanting to save her from this creepy guy. Otherwise, she wouldn't have gone up and met the guy in the elevator in the first place. Right. But we have Bo getting, like, introduced to the world of the Fae through that testy thing. And usually there's, like, a refusal of the call, like, no, I'm not going to. And I think we, again, this is first episode stuff. We see elements of of that. And then the meeting with the mentor, which doesn't happen until the second episode, right? That's where she meets Trick. I believe that's true, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I was looking at some notes about the hero's journey for writers, and they had a list of kind of common characters that you see in these types of journeys. And I loved it because on the list, there was like heroes, of course, mentors, of course. Then there was a shapeshifters category, (laughs) as well as a tricksters category. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, Trick is like both a mentor and kind of a trickster. (laughs) Yeah. Well, even in the first episode, it could be Dyson in a way. Yeah. Because he's showing her, okay, you have to take take my energy and he's showing her he literally shows her what a fae is when he wolfs out and she goes what the hell are you you know and it could even be lauren because she is the one who is educating her about what a fae is what kind of fae she is and the two different sides so i think the mentor can come in many forms even in that first episode yeah and i think in the first season she really has a team of mentors like you're talking about i think dyson lauren trick even kenzie i feel Mm -hmm. like teaches her things how to kind of exist in this new world she's occupying. But I think if you look at it as a the series, I think Trick maybe emerges as her ultimate mentor. But I do think she has like a team of them, at least in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think Kenzie is the one who teaches Bo how to exist with both of those worlds. You know, how to use her fey powers to an advantage to do the whole PI thing so they can still you know, on a practical level make a few bucks and afford rent on the crack shack, even though Okay, the crack shack really doesn't have rent, but so they can afford, <laughs> you know, their vending machines with their 10-year-old cheesies and things like that. And, you know, to th- she thinks outside the box in a way that Bo normally wouldn't. Because at first, Bo is like, Kenzie, why did you make up a PI firm? And Kenzie's like, you know, she's like, you're the one who can manipulate people by touch and not in a creepy handjob kind of way. Kenzie immediately sees opportunity for her and Bo to use her powers in a way that's advantageous to them. But that's less being a mentor than it is being an annoying person who, like, pushes you into things that you don't necessarily (laughs) want to do. That's true. (laughs) I think that Kenzie may be more of an ally than a mentor. Yeah. Yeah. But she knows how to balance the two worlds, is what I'm saying. The human world and the fae world. And then the the next step is like crossing the threshold. And I think Bo actually crosses the threshold before maybe she meets her true mentors. And then there's all these tests and you meet allies and enemies. And then, you know, the hero and all of its allies prepare for some sort of challenge. I think definitely Bo has completed all of these steps multiple times over. And I think she's gone through a hero's journey pretty much every season, right? But I think you can also look at it. I think maybe here we're looking at it more as a series type of process rather than just within the contained within one season. But there are a few more steps that were mentioned in the list that I found that I was like, I feel like Bo has completed some of these stages, but I wasn't sure if maybe she completed all of them. And if she did, like what event might qualify as these stages. And so I thought we might talk about these a little bit. So there's a stage called the ordeal, 
and it's described as near the middle of the story, the hero enters a central space in the special world and confronts death or faces his or her greatest fear. Out of the moment of death comes a new life. Do y'all have any thoughts of any events that you feel like really fit that one? I'd argue that this could be the the dawning. Yeah. Mm. Or the yawning, because it didn't <laughs> quite have the weight, the dramatic weight. I think it was meant to be uh, by the end of the whole thing. But yeah, definitely. And it is almost literally in the middle of the whole series. Mm. And Bo does come That's out true. with a renewed sense of her powers and being able to control it, or so she says. And it is a big deal in the, as it's written here, the special world. Right. Yeah. Because it's a, a rite of passage for the Fae, so. Mm-hmm. And she's literally in a different world. She's in the special right. world of the Fae, but also in the special world of the Dawning, so. It's, <laughs> right. It's a world within a world. And yes, confronting confronting greatest fears, I'd say that's true with the uh, stuff happening in the craziness and seeing her father, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and having to kill Dyson and, right. you know. Yeah. Or even going back and to even get to the awning she had, or dawning, excuse me, she had to confront her fears of going back and confronting her birth mother, Mary Dennis, and confronting death. You know, she'd devolve and turn into an underfay if she didn't do this whole process, so. Yeah, that's true. As far as, like, the moment of death creating a new life, we did have this warning that if she didn't complete the dawning successfully, she'd devolve into an underfay. So, yeah, that's a good point. Which is another greatest fear, yeah. Yeah. That she's truly a monster and she's becoming who she really is. Yeah, that's a good point. Y'all have sold me. Because I originally was thinking, and I don't know why I didn't think of the dawning. I feel like an idiot that I didn't. But I was thinking of the end of season four when Kenzie died. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's like another greatest fear being manifested of her yeah. losing her heart. But I think the dawning fits better from this description. Well, and it's funny because you mentioned all of these stages of the hero's journey. I mean, a lot of these I see just in the first episode. It's a fey, 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 fey world. Right. Of course. Yeah. I mean, now that I'm looking at all these stages, that's like all the different acts written in each part of the episode. But it's, it is a good reminder to say that they don't, the hero doesn't just go through the journey once. They go through it many, many times as the character grows and evolves. Right. So the next step is described as the reward. The hero takes possession of the treasure won by facing death. There may be celebration, but there is also danger of losing the treasure again. And obviously, I think treasure doesn't necessarily have to be a physical object. It could just be an accomplishment or something like that. Do y'all have thoughts on that one? I think the mm. reward is docubus sex. <laughs> <laughs> because finally, Bo and Lord can come together <laughs> after all of their insecurities, you know, of Lauren being enslaved to the Light Fae, and they come together <laughs> and just put all their insecurities aside about Lauren saying, well, this, this isn't about Dyson, and Bo says, no, this is about us, and then they have great sex, and that's the reward for them being together. <laughs> but, uh, you know, then they might lose it again because they might break up. But then there's also the danger of losing it because Lauren is human and oh. might eventually die. But, yeah, that's the reward in my Okay, my so mind. that's Andy's <laughs> argument for the reward. If we're thinking of the dawning as the ordeal, though, could it be she feels like she has control over her group cheese suck? But it was interesting because we were talking about how in the last episode how Bo says after the dawning, oh, yes, I can control it now. And yet in the final episode in Rise, she was saying, 
I can't. Well, I don't have control of it. Yeah. So it's kind of what we're saying here, that the hero goes through the journey many times as many as different challenges come up. But I do think, I think we could argue that a new sense of self-confidence yes. was the result of, of mm. making it through the dawning, right? I mean, that right. was part of what that was. Or what I think that was supposed to be, even though they kind of went back on it in the finale. I I can see that because in Delinquents, the following episode, she was, you know, I feel new, I feel reborn, I feel like I'm powerful and strong and I can do this. And that was a real change for Bo. She had mostly been fairly not confident and a little bit scared of her abilities before she went through all of that. So I I think that's a good argument, Chris. Because, I mean, there was the whole thing, too, about how she been essentially gaining power but not able to control it at the beginning of season three because because of the dawning coming up and so coming out of the dawning and having successfully made it through she had the new power but she felt more in control of it Mm -hmm. otherwise i'd say like i know it doesn't apply to the dawning but like before that the end of most seasons this is kind of true right like the end of season two where they have to go up against the Garuda and they make it out okay. And Well, and I think even though Bo does say in the finale she felt like she couldn't necessarily control the Parapus that allowed her to do the group suck thing, you know, I think that's maybe built into this idea of the reward is that she could lose it. And, right. And I think mm-hmm. we do see that. Because, like, at the beginning of Season 5, even, when she pulls Chi from those gross hiker guys to revive herself after falling off the mountain, like, she's in control there. She doesn't even do, like, scary, multiple-voice talky thing. Oh, that's you know? a good point. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but we didn't see later in the episode, excuse me, later in the season, that Hades forces her to tap into that, and she is very much not in control of that. That is him controlling it. Well, it's interesting when you talk about the reward... The hero takes possession of the treasure won by facing death. I think of the end of season four, the beginning of season five, when Kenzie faced death, and that was the reward Bo went, or she went on another journey again at the beginning of season five to get Kenzie back. And that was the reward, was having Kenzie back in the human world again, or in the, you know, top side, not not in Valhalla or or in hell. But there's danger of Bo losing Kenzie again whether it's to fey enemies or, you know, Kenzie literally leaves for a great part of the season. And that's maybe why I was also thinking the ordeal could have been Kenzie dying, because there is this very clear, she goes and she gets, she crosses into another world, she brings Kenzie back, but she could lose her again, and she does, and Kenzie ends up leaving. Yeah. Actually, I feel like the Kenzie situation is possibly one of the later steps here. Okay. So let's move on to the next step, which is the road back. Described as about three-fourths of the way through the story, the hero is driven to complete the adventure, leaving the special world to be sure the treasure is brought home. Often a chase scene signals the urgency and danger of the mission. So thoughts on this one? Hmm. Well, that's her bringing Kenzie back. You know, she completed the adventure, left Valhalla, Kenzie was brought back home, but then, as a consequence, Bo has to trade herself and descend to hell. So she trades herself for her. So there's always that sense of danger. And but you're back to Kenzie being, or the loss of Kenzie being the, the um, ordeal. Right. But it could be that not necessarily these things have to fall quite in order. There could be some space in the storytelling. No, I know. I'm just... But if we were thinking of the ordeal as the dawning, do you have any thoughts about what might be the road back in that context? 
What about the uh, the whole? I know nobody wants to talk about it, but oh, what the about the wanderer, wanderer situation? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the train. Yeah, because she left the special world, but she also left like our plane of existence. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a chase scene for you. <laughs> I'm just saying, could be. Yeah, yeah could I be. don't know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And then the next step is called the resurrection. It's described as at the climax. <laughs> the hero is severely tested once more on the threshold of home. I almost said a different word there. He or she is purified by a last sacrifice, another moment of death and rebirth, but on a higher and more complete level. By the hero's action, the polarities that were in conflict at the beginning are finally resolved. Here's where I'm going to say maybe this is Kenzie's sacrifice. Mm. Although, yeah. here's the thing. It wasn't so much the Bo's action that affected things as Kenzie's action. Unless we go into taking this back to Bo bringing Kenzie back from there. Because then it would be Bo's action again. Yeah. (laughs) I was actually thinking we could actually go through all these steps with Kenzie, too, probably. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I think so, too. I think she definitely goes on her own hero's journey. Well, and this also could apply to the to Rise in the end of the series with Bo being tested and... And Tamsin dying. Yeah, and... You know, at the end, she's got more control of her powers because she's able to r- resurrect everybody in Feyronto. You know, her uh, friends convince her, yes, you do have control of her powers. And she says the, the tagline, I will live the life I choose. So kind of bringing everything full circle. Now she has control and she can have, she has that kind of choice in choosing who lives or who dies, that she has complete control of her powers. Because I was at first thinking... Tamsin might have been the last sacrifice. Mm. But, and then I thought, well, could it maybe be Trick? But I don't think that the polarities that were in conflict being resolved, I don't think that that comes directly from Trick's death the way that it is more centered around Tamsin's. It's kind of difficult because it's not like Tamsin dies and then Bo is able to defeat her father, but it's more that they happen kind of at the same time. Like Bo defeats her father and then Tamsin passes away. So it's it's not as sequential as the description would like to have it to be. But I, I, I tend to think more of this as Tamsin dying in the last episode. That's fair. And then the final step is called Return with the Elixir. The hero comes home or continues the journey, bearing some elements of the treasure that has the power to transform the world as the hero has been transformed. Massive Chisak. <laughs> <laughs> and then that, she return. Is that the elixir you're talking about? Yes. I wonder if if Dagny might also be an element of the elixir as well. Mm. Well, hmm. that it, it continues the story, and then there's also the element of evil never dies, and the evil living on through Dagny. It's it's the catalyst through which the hero's journey could continue when the evil resurrects itself, and the gang has to band together to be ready. And then Dagny could become her own hero in a, in a different story as the story continues. Ooh, I've got a good one. Okay, hit me, Chris. <laughs> okay, Bo's not choosing a side, because now their colony right? doesn't demand that you choose a side. Right, mm-hmm. yep. I thought about that, too. Power to transform the world as the hero has been transformed, unaligned. By not choosing a side, yep. Yep. I like it. I was thinking of that, too, Chris. Thank you. I still think You're the welcome. elixir is docubus sex. <laughs> now she can you go think and- everything is docubus <laughs> sex, is. Annie. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great elixir to refresh you and <laughs> transform the world? <laughs> transform the world. But now I'm confused because in order to have the docubus sex, wouldn't you have to either be a doctor or a succubus? 
Yeah, so? <laughs> Are you going to... <laughs> the entire world would have to be doctor- doctors and succubi? Why not? I'm choose just a- saying. Don't, well, choose a side. That sounds kind of silly, but... Well, <laughs> and Lauren does have the elixir, like, literally. So, you know, I don't know what that means, but it just it's part of the, the hero that returns home with the elixir. She just gets together with Lauren, and, you know, Lauren has the power to transform the world potentially through her elixirs, turn fey or human turn human fey and fey human so anyway i'm just trying to work it in you can like lauren is an elixir to the fandom because she makes us all feel good you can subtitle this episode you know aka annie makes up a bunch of bullshit to make it all about docubus sex (laughs) exactly (laughs) accurate (laughs) but then you could probably subtitle all of our episodes that yes it's true When I was looking this up, I, I found a, a very helpful page on on thewritersjourney.com talking about the hero's journey. And they actually had a separate section where they listed the stages of what's called the heroine's journey. I'm guessing feminist scholars got a hold of the hero's journey and put their own spin on it. This one is interesting because it, it has to do a lot more about femininity and masculinity as these polarizing forces in a person's life. And I don't think that Bo's journey fits the heroine's journey as well as it does the hero's journey. But there were some pieces of it that I thought were kind of interesting, because the first stage of it is called separation from the feminine. And I was thinking about the fact that that's generally how Bo's very beginnings have been articulated, is the fact that she was taken from her mother, not necessarily that she was taken from her parents. Like, from the very beginning, it's always been about a separation from her mother. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. But the next stage is, like, identification with the masculine and gathering of allies. And this I don't really see. And that's something I've actually really liked about Bo as a hero figure, is I don't feel like they've masculinized her. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yes. Kind of. You know, I feel with, with Buffy... You know, her big thing is, like, she's a super badass fighter, and she, like, that's her primary tool, usually, is, like, aggression and stuff. And that's never been Bo. Like, she can do those things somewhat, but that's not her primary tool. So I don't really feel like she's a particularly masculinized female hero. Because Bo's real superpower is compassion. You could argue that it's the more, quote-unquote, feminine side or femme fatale of seduction and how she uses her powers to... This, you know, gets into, is it consensual or not, to the tingly touch and to get people to fall for her and then to suck their life force. I mean, that seems to be, it's using the feminine wiles as your powers, what the succubus typically is written as in literature. Right. And the next several steps are kind of similar. It's Road of Trials, meeting ogres and dragons. Why they specify ogres and dragons, I'm not entirely sure, but it does. Finding the boon of success. I think that's kind of a funny way to put it, but okay. Awakening to feelings of spiritual aridity, colon, death. <laughs> wow, that's not heavy. I know. Who wrote this? <laughs> oh, no. Spiritual aridity? What? The next one is initiation and descent to the goddess. And then here's where I feel like Bo's story kind of picks back up on this timeline. Urgent yearning to reconnect with the feminine. Because I do think we see, starting in season three, Bo's desire to reconnect with both of her mothers and trying to heal those relationships. And that's the next step, is healing the mother-daughter split. And I do think we do get get that in Bo's story. That's fair. 
Because mm-hmm. I was thinking about the fact that even though Bo talks about how she was raised by human parents, we never really hear her talk about her father all that much. She's always talking about her mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Did y'all ever think about that? I didn't think about it to del- until today. I figured when she went home, her father had passed away. But even then, like when Hades is taunting her in the last episode, she's like, I had a good mother, Mary Dennis. Like she doesn't say I had good parents. Well, it's interesting because I just rewatched parts of It's Bo Place Like Home. And yeah, you don't see the father. He's mentioned. But yeah, you always wonder where he is or did he pass away or. And what did he think of Bo? Did he think she was a demon child and throw all those awful words at her? Or was that just the mother that Bo right. had to heal her relationship with? Yeah, I've wondered that too. If it was primarily her mother who forced her out of the house or if her father was also in on the horrible name calling. And then after healing the mother-daughter split, it's healing the wounded masculine. Eh, I don't really see that quite as much, but because I mean, she wounds the masculine, she sends her, fa- <laughs> her father back to Tartarus, but I don't know that she's necessarily healing the wounded masculine. And then this final step is integration of masculine and feminine. I'm like, I feel like Bo was there all along. So, But I, I did think it was an interesting adaptation of the journey, so I wanted to mention it. Okay. <laughs> Annie's not impressed. Annie has mentally checked out. <laughs> For there has been no mention of docubus sex. I know, back at spiritual aridity. She's like, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I just never heard of that word. What? I don't. I hadn't until today either. Arid? Yeah. Yeah. Has to do with aridness, er, being arid, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Like the deodorant. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Keeping your, your spirit uh, fresh, fresh and clean. And clean. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> clean and dry. We have reached the end of this part of our discussion about Bo's journey throughout the series. In this episode, we use narrative archetypes and symbols to explore Bo's story. But in our next episode, we will discuss her character arc, how she developed and what was revealed about her over the course of the series. If you have thoughts about how Bo's story progressed over the five seasons of Lost Girl, or if you would like to add to the discussion that we had in this episode, please send in your feedback however you would like. You can leave a comment on the show notes for this episode at drinksatthedoll.com slash 133. Send email to feedback at drinksatthedoll.com. Record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us. Or call our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. We hope to hear some of your thoughts about Bo and her journey over the seasons. Drinks of the Doll is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find our other podcasts about Killjoys, Orphan Black, and a couple of other shows over at AskGenreTV.com. I'm so glad you could join us for Drinks of the Doll. My name is Stephanie. My name is Annie. And my name is Chris. Thanks for listening. Can you handle it, Dave? I can handle it. Okay. Because I was trying to moderate oh, there the, you go. the volume That's better. for Susan. Is that better? Yeah. Trying to moderate the volume of Susan. <laughs> we just want to moderate Susan. Th- I think she said four, but but okay. I think I said four, okay. babe. Because the thing about any given volume of Susan is that we will expand to fill the size of any container. <laughs> We take the shape of our container. You smart ass. Okay.